If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, I have the spiritual gift of fitting in small places. (laughs) Jeff has a spiritual gift of lifting high things. So those of you who have been coming to our church more recently, we have been in this letter on and off for... The past three years, we began here three years ago, springtime. This happens to be, if my counting holds, the 45th sermon in this letter. Um, And so the plan is now to finish it. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and so over the next several weeks, we will preach through this. I chose 1 Corinthians three years ago for some specific reasons. The main one being, three years ago, I had only been here two years, and my understanding of preaching is that it's supposed to um, get at your conscience. It, it's supposed to correct, rebuke, and exhort Second Timothy 4 with all patience. It's it, it, it isn't just to give you new information. It isn't to wow you with my great and profound and deep intelligence. It might include telling good stories, but that's not the main thing. It's not mainly to give you 10 ways to have a better and happier marriage, although that would be helpful. The, the texts in the Bible that deal with preaching all deal with bringing the Word of God, the truth that we're in, to bear on your lives in such a way that it brings conviction of sin, that it causes you to turn to Christ, that it urges you to live in a more holy way. And so it is supposed to create some discomfort. Uh, we, we sang it in the first song. That's why I picked the first song, as it was this morning, that God's Word is a sword plunging. And so the letter of 1 Corinthians is a sermon, in essence, where Paul shows us how he does that in bringing the principles of God's Word to bear on specific issues of sin in the church in Corinth. He doesn't just leave it general. He gets really down and dirty into the actual sins of actual lives in a church. And so I wanted to preach this as a way to say, here's not just some good biblical content. Here is a model the biblical model for how apostolic preaching should be in a local church, to learn both from the content of 1 Corinthians and the tone of it. I think most Christians struggle more with tone than necessarily with content, and especially in our day. I think the best example recently has been Donald Trump. It's his tone and, and so leaders get themselves in trouble, not just with content, but with tone. And I just want to ask you to have the faith for Paul's content and his pastoral tone in this letter. It's aggressive. It's pointed. He deals with the specific sins. He doesn't leave it general. So that was one reason. And then the, the issues that Paul deals with in this letter are very relevant to our lives and our days. Sexual morality. Issues dealing with marriage, with male and female issues, uh, 
later on in 1 Corinthians, at the end of this chapter, we'll, we'll get into that, spiritual gifts, the Lord's Supper. And so this letter mainly deals with divisions in the church because of their pride. And so that's us, right? We're prideful people. And when there's pride, there's relational disharmony. And so this letter loves us enough under the Holy Spirit to help us kill our pride, to help you put to death your pride, which is a really good thing to get over ourselves, to get over our posturing, to get over our need to be flattered, to get over our thin skin where when somebody who loves us puts his finger on a sensitive area of sin in our lives that instead of wanting to destroy the messenger, we have faith in God to thank God for it and hopefully become sanctified there. So that's what I want to do with this letter. I had intended to preach chapter 14 in four sermons, but the way it's working out, we're going to do it in two. So I'm going to do the first 32 verses or so, and next week, Pastor Jeff is going to do 34 to 40. So I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthier section here and ask that you would give yourself attention to it. Kids, I know this can be tough for you uh, to listen to this long of a section. If you've got to be a little squirmy, listen to your mom and dad there, but uh, I hope that this isn't too tough for you. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who speaks prophes- or the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But I do not know the meaning of the language. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen, to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than words with my mind in order to... Nevertheless... 
In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and then let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Let's pray. Other righteous are you. And your word is right. You have appointed your testimonies. May we be given understanding now. And may we go even so far as to live what you say, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Pastor Jeff said, the church in Corinth is an awful church. Uh, And yet it's Christ's church. They're full of sin and pride and division. Uh, They excel in one thing, and it's sin. They're really good at it. And yet, in the very beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul commends them as having all of the gifts. Verse 7, you're not lacking in any gift. They're enriched in all speech and all knowledge. It's a very gifted church, a lot of talent, and yet they're using what God has given them to prop up their own worth, their own names, and so they're dividing, and they've divided over just about everything you can divide over, not only spiritual gifts, they're dividing over who's the best teacher, preacher, they're boasting over their tolerance of sexual immorality. Look how progressive we are. They're suing each other before unbelievers. Husbands and wives are dividing. They're dividing over whether you can eat certain meat or not. They're dividing over the proper order of male and female in the church and whether or not women should speak in the church. And they're dividing over the Lord's Supper. And then in in chapters 12 to 14, they're dividing over spiritual gifts. And as you heard repeatedly, The whole point, the entire point of God giving you various talents and abilities is to build up the church 
And so these very gifts given to build up the church, they're using to tear it down. They lack love. That's why chapter 13 is set right in the middle of chapter 12 and 14. Chapter 12 deals with all of these spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 deals with two spiritual gifts in particular, tongues and prophecy. In the middle of it is this seemingly uh, unknown chapter coming out of nowhere of love. Why is that set right in the middle? It's so that they can look at what real Christian love is and, and have communicated them very clearly, you're not that. You're not loving. You use spiritual gifts to destroy rather than to build up, and the reason is because you lack love, which is, of course, as we know as Christians, to be the one thing that we're marked by. We are to be marked by love, and love is defined as serving the best interests of another, using what God has given me to help build them up, and they won't do it. So in our chapter, which is towards at the end of this, Paul dealing with division over spiritual gifts, the main one that they're dividing over is tongues. Tongues is the big issue here. If you go back to chapter 12, you'll see that he has two lists of different spiritual gifts. In 12, beginning at verse 8, he has a list of gifts. Faith and healing and miracles and prophecy, distinguishing spirits, various kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Which one's listed last? Again, beginning in verse 28, God has appointed apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helping, various kinds of tongues. Again, which one is listed last? Tongues. And in chapter 14, he picks up this issue right away again. Pursue love above all. Be loving. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. You should want to continue to grow and develop gifts and add more gifts so that you can be more help to the church. Especially that you may prophesy. That would be an indictment of the Corinth because they are just so bent on speaking in tongues, and now Paul's going to deal with their pride. The gift of tongues, which we'll get into in a moment, they counted as the gift of all gifts. It was the Michael Jordan of gifts. It, it, it was the gift above all the gifts, and if you had this gift, then you thought you were the bee's knees, the best, the elite, the ninja Christian. And you demanded that everybody else recognize your superior position. And Paul's humbling them by listing it last in the two lists. And then by saying very clearly, as you heard over and over again, tongues can be really helpful, but you should prophesy. Because you want to speak something that helps build somebody else, not speak something that's unintelligible to them. So let me just give you a quick overview of this, I think, of gifts. First, the thing that they're dividing over, the talents and abilities, they're called spiritual gifts. Why are they called spiritual gifts? It's not because they only deal with the spiritual realm. 
It's because of the source of the gifts. Who gives the gifts? God. In, in 12.11, they're empowered by the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually. In verse 8, 18, as God arranged the members, and in uh, verse 24, that God has so composed part uh, the body, giving honor the part that lacked it. God gives the gifts by the Holy Spirit. So they're called spiritual gifts, not because they're some supernatural, only miracle thing. They're, they're rather ordinary often. They're the spiritual gift of making hook-rucking or uh, rug-hooking. Right? It's the... It's the spiritual gift of emptying the garbage. It's the spiritual gift of playing an instrument. They're ordinary, but the source comes from God. So that's first. Second, every believer has one. Every believer has one. He's in, in 1211. These are all empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So God has given each of you who have faith in Christ, certain talents and gifts and abilities, some with working with your hands more, some are more mind gifts, some are more uh, gifts of faith. Whatever they are, each one has one. Third, there is an ordering of gifts. Some, just look at 1228. I'm going to emphasize something as I read this verse. And God has appointed in the church first apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. What is Paul doing there? He's giving you a hierarchy of gifts. I don't know what word to use here. I don't want to sound bad, but gifts that are more first than last. They're to be more desired. They're, I don't want to say more important, but there's a hierarchy here. And we hate that, don't we? Now, the greatest of all is love. If, if you have a gift that seems really small and nobody notices and you do it out of love, you're far superior than somebody who has the greatest gift but doesn't have love. But there's an ordering. There's an equality in the sense that God gives some or one to each, but there's a hierarchy in that he lists first, second, third, fourth. And in our chapter, he puts tongues last and prophecy, and we'll, we'll talk about those as first. And then, so three things about gifts given by God, given to each believer. There is an ordering and last. The purpose that you heard repeatedly in our text is for the building up of the church. Whatever talent, ability you have is given for the express purpose from God to be used to build up the church. You remember when Jesus told the parable of the talents? And they were all given whatever, and some of them used them to good use and, and made more, and one of them didn't use it. And he was condemned. So the gifts, the talents given by God are to be used. They're to be used to be fruitful, to make more. And that more is to help others to become more like Christ. To build up the church. Whatever your gift is. Right here we have a beekeeper. 
He's been given the spiritual gift of agricultural keeping of bees. He's to use that to build up the church. I'm not joking here. This is a spiritual gift. Right? We have business owners. We have homemakers. We have carpenters. We have teachers. We have law enforcement. We have teach, we, we have pastors. We have all of these gifts, and they're all to be used for the building up of the church. And they were dividing over them. They were dividing over mainly the gifts of tongues. Tongues, they thought, speaking in another language, either another human language or a heavenly language, we'll talk about that in a moment, that those who were able to do that were the best, even though they were a benefit to nobody. You see how messed up sin makes you? The very gift of God given them, for the very purpose of building up the church, the gift they were using had no effect on building up the church, and yet they thought themselves the greatest. They were like an elite basketball player on a team who only ever played for himself, and so the team never won, but he had the best stats, and he thought he was the greatest. They were like the uber-gifted pianist who played on a band but always just played to show off how good he or she was, messed up the entirety of it, contributed awfully to the concert, and yet just thought he was the greatest, is what they were doing. And so the whole purpose of this is to cause the Corinthians to repent of their pride to emphasize and desire gifts that would be more useful to the church in order to humble them so that their church would no longer be torn apart but be built up. How many of you have been a part of the church that's been torn up? A church that was just so full of itself. Maybe there's a select few who just demanded power, and if you disagree with them, they just tear you up. Maybe it was just an entire kind of congregation that really had no spiritual hunger anymore, didn't care about growing in Jesus just as long as they got their way and they were never convicted of sin. It's awful to be a part of a church that is just destroying each other. That's what they're doing. And here Paul is showing how to avoid that, if you would, brothers and sisters. And one way to avoid in regards to spiritual gifts is to use your gifts for the benefit of each other here. It's what you're here for. God has given you gifts, talents, and you have been given them to be an asset of the church. And maybe you're thinking, what if I'm like a 75-year-old man or woman, I'm physically lost my strength, I need a nap about every other hour, and I, I wake up at 5 in the morning and I go to bed at 3 in the afternoon, what use am I to the church? Lord, can you pray? Can you write a letter? Can you encourage a young mother that it, she'll get through it? There is use for every believer in the church. And if you want to maintain a healthy church, just use whatever you've been given by God to help others. That's it. If we have that mentality here, we will continue to be blessed of the Lord. But if you demand that people recognize your gifts, if you feel slighted, if 
If you are wanting to elevate and prop yourself up, it will destroy a church as it's doing here. All right, so let's deal with the issue of tongues. I am um, probably going to offend half of you in one point and the other half of you at another point because this issue has been utterly divisive as it was in the Corinthian church in the American church. And so God love us. We use his good gifts to harm. And so I just ask for your humble teachableness here. The real reality is we don't exactly know what the gift of tongues is. And, and, and so, Steve, if you think you know what it is, you're wrong. If you think it's only a heavenly language and that you commune with God by it, you could be wrong. Because it's not clear. If you think it's only other human languages that, like in Acts 2, we'll see in a moment that God gives you to be able to communicate the gospel, that's clear that it is. It could be more than that. If you think that the gifts of tongue is no more in function in the church, because it had mainly to do with verifying that the apostles were sent by God as a miracle to that, and now the apostles are over, the canon is closed, and there's no more tongues, you could be right, but you could be wrong. And if you think the tongues are still in function for day and should be a normal, regular part of the church and it's a good gift given by God, you could be right and you could be wrong. And I say that all to say is, get over yourself. Don't stand firm where it is unclear in the Bible, please. So, the gift of tongues... As you can see here in chapter 14, is a gift given by the Holy Spirit. And as I said, there are two positions taken here, and it isn't clear. In Acts chapter 2, the apostles were given the ability to speak in other human languages so that when all of the Jews were gathered from all over the world and some spoke different languages, they were all able to hear the gospel preached in their own language. These were earthly language, human languages. So, so that, that is true of the gift of tongues. Here in chapter 14, it may include more than human languages. Some heavenly language, some non-human language. Acts 14 may hold that interpretation. Acts 2 doesn't. Which one is it? I think tongues is earthly languages under the Holy Spirit. Not not necessarily a heavenly language. I'm not going to stand dogmatically on that and think that there's something awful wrong with your interpretation if you think it's more than an earthly language. But they were used repeatedly in the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 10, and chapter 19, and chapter 14. There's only places we, other than 1 Corinthians 14 that we see the gift of tongues. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, and 1 Corinthians 14 are the only places we see it. And in Acts chapter 2, they're human languages. In Acts chapter 10 and 19, it isn't clear. 
But they're given, the gift of tongues is given to Gentile believers to prove to the Jewish believers that Gentiles are included in Christ. And so the purpose for which tongues are given in the books of Acts is to give credibility in a sense of a miracle to the reception of the gospel or to give ability to hear it. So those are the only biblical instances of tongue, of tongues. So what else do we know about tongues? Well, here in the church, they're being used to divide the church. Paul seeks to show that the gift of prophecy, which we'll get to in a moment, is much more vital than the gifts of tongues. The gift of tongues is given by the Holy Spirit, as we see in Acts, as a sign confirming the truth of the gospel and so that each man could hear the gospel in their own language and to show the inclusion of the Gentiles in Christ. In Corinthians, which is an established church, they were using the gift of tongues in such a way that it didn't include any interpretation so that the people who were present had no idea what was being said. So whether or not it's a, another human language or a heavenly language, I tend to think it's a human language. The, the people who were gathered had no idea what was being spoken. And so the gift of tongues should not be used unless there is human interpretation so that people can understand what is being said. Now here's the trick. If I speak in another language that you don't understand and I have one interpreter... I feel like you might not know if what the interpreter is saying is actually true. I think the way to do it would be to have two interpreters who each hear what you say in a language. They go in separate rooms and write out the interpretation so that we can know if what is being said is true. <laughs> i kind of joking here a bit. So that, here's where I'm at. Tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It isn't to be used in the church unless it's interpreted. I think that tongues are just human languages given by the Spirit to communicate the gospel and confirm the power of God. I could be wrong there. It may include other non-human languages. I believe the gift of tongues has often been abused in the American church to harm the church. It's been abused in elevating it, just like the Corinthians have done, to say that unless you speak in the gift of tongues, you're either a second-class Christian or no Christian at all, and you don't have the Holy Spirit or not as much as you should. And it has wreaked havoc in the spiritual lives of people, and it is an awful error. And so there is great reluctance in the American church to allow speaking in tongues because of how awful it's been abused. And we won't do that here. But... The principle we need to all learn in America right now is the abuse of a thing does not invalidate its proper use. What do I mean? Well, we see this around the gun issue in America. That the abuse of guns, using them to murder other people, mass shooting, does not invalidate the freedom nor the right use of it, which is what so many on the left want to say. It's being abused, so we need to restrict freedom and restrict the right use of them. That's foolish. That's illogical. The right use of a thing 
should not invalidate its proper use. I think the same thing is true of tongues. I don't think the gift of tongues is kaput. I don't think the gift of prophecy is kaput. I don't think the gift of miracles or healing is kaput. I disagree with John MacArthur here. I know many of you have read him on this issue. He stands so dogmatically and firmly here, and I think very arrogantly. I think he's wrong. I think he should have some humility here. I also disagree greatly with the charismatics who hold up tongues as the main evaluation of how spiritual you are. Paul lists them last. But we shouldn't divide over this. Pine Grove, we... I don't think have anybody ever speaking in tongues. Maybe one day. So that's that on tongues. Have I been helpful to you? I don't know. What's that? I couldn't understand what you said. <laughs> so I brought up John MacArthur um, because of his involvement on this issue. He has been very helpful to me in many ways. He's trustworthy in many ways, and he has tried to speak very prophetically, boldly against the abuse of tongues, which we should be grateful for. But I, kinda, I, I do disagree with his kind of hardline cessationism. I'm not going to get into what that is. I know his argument. I just don't think the Bible speaks like he does. I think there's a much plain, more plain way to say that the gift of tongues is obviously a gift given by the Holy Spirit. And it needs to be rightly ordered. It needs to be seen for the lower priority that it is. Other gifts are much more important in the church. But what I want to get to is this issue of prophecy here. I don't have time to go in depth of what prophecy is. But I just need to beg you to listen to me here, okay? Trust me. I don't really say that very often. Prophecy here is not mainly foretelling the future. That's not what this is. This isn't going up to somebody and saying, hey, God gave me a vision that in three weeks or three months, this is going to happen. This isn't, you know, a, a guy or gal sitting at home saying, I know Donald Trump is going to be reelected. If you hear somebody say something like that, bells and alarms should be going off immediately in your head that this person is going to cause real danger. And you know the, the penalty in Scripture for saying God tells you he's going to do something that doesn't happen, right? You know what the death penalty is? It's the death penalty. You get one time. And there should be a whole lot of executions after this last election. <laughs> or, or, or maybe you should not listen to them anymore at all ever. Right, All of the people who say, I know that Jesus is coming on this day. Oh, wait. Wait, I forgot about this. It's going to be this day. Oh, wait, I missed that. I, I, I didn't see this. It's going to be this day. Like, Just don't give them any time at all. You know what they want? They want your money. <laughs> That's it. They want money. They want your money. They want your heart. Don't give it to them. Don't give it to them. Give me your heart. You know me. You know my life and my character. You, you know my family. 
One of the big problems in America today is all of the extra pastors you have and how quickly you give your hearts to them, but how little you give your heart to the local church leadership that you have, and particularly on this issue. So prophecy here isn't foretelling, but simply bringing God's word to bear to correct, rebuke, and admonish. Think Old Testament prophets. Sometimes they did foretell, but you know what they did mostly? They told the church where they were wrong. (laughs) That's prophecy. It's bringing God's word to the local church and saying, you're wrong here. You need to repent here. And if you don't repent, God's going to do this. And if you do repent, God's going to bless you this way. Prophets are just preachers. That's it. And so what Paul is saying here, strive for the gift of prophecy in the sense of strive for the gift of learning God's word and having the courage enough to bring it to bear in somebody's life where they have danger because of sin. This is what prophets do. They say, there's a wolf sheep. Look out. Or they look at you as a sheep and say, hey, sheep, inside of you is this little wolf running around. Be careful. There's a cliff here. Get away. And you know what sheep do when prophets do that? They tell you to shut up and quit being so judgmental and mean. That's what sheep do to shepherds. That when the shepherds say, don't walk over that cliff like the other sheep did. Who are you to tell me not to do that? That's the gift of prophecy. It's to be hated by everybody. <laughs> because you tell them the truth. Because you say, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, sleeping with your father's wife is putting your soul in eternal danger. Stop it. And as a church, commending that guy... And not rebuking him is destroying your church. Stop it. Or you business people in the church who are going before unbelievers and suing each other and causing a blight on Christ's name, knock it off. And you know, if you want to make somebody who's rich mad, tell them to not to do something. Right? Or Paul says, you think you love Apollos more than Peter, more than Paul, and you think you're dividing up these little cans, knock it off. Jesus is Lord. You're fighting over whether you can eat this meat or that meat, knock it off. He's, the whole letter is prophecy. So, what, do I, what does it all have to do with anything? I'm getting there. So first... Let me apply it to parents. By your very nature, being fathers and mothers, you have to be prophets for your children. You have to tell them no where there is danger. You have to commend them where there's positive, of course. I'm not saying being harsh, but you have to discipline them. You have to be the prophet in their lives. They're looking to you. Older women, by your very nature, of being in the church and being an older Christian woman, according to Titus 2, you are a prophet for the younger women to urge them to be content at home, to serving their husbands, to raising their children to the Lord, and to helping them see the value and worth of this calling before the Lord. You have to be prophetic for the younger women in the church. All right, so, 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 so that's what Paul is telling them to excel in, that gift of prophecy. And, and, and to use 
those gifts well for the glory of God. Let, let me do one other thing with this text, if you can bear with me. The principle that Paul is dealing, dealing with here deals with language. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul commended this church because they were very gifted with their mouths. And the principle is clarity of speech. When they're speaking in tongues, it's unclear to everybody. Nobody knows what they're saying. And I don't think I would be helpful to you if I just talked about tongues the whole time because we don't have that issue. We're not dividing over that issue. We're not hurting each other, sinning in the area of tongues, are we? Does anybody know of anyone in our church that is sinning and hurting others because of the gift of tongues? It's not our issue, is it? I'm really not aware of it. So can I just ask you to look at the principle of speaking clearly, and I want to apply that to us. Our issue isn't tongues, as far as clarity of speech. You know what our issue is? Lying. What do I mean? Our age is an age of saying things unclear in order to make people think we mean this when we actually mean that. Can I give you an example? Your kids have done this. You've done this. You ask your child to go clean his room. He's gone for a couple hours. You've lost track. He comes back and you ask, have you cleaned your room? What do your kid always say? Yes. No kid has ever said no. Why? Because they're liars. And so are you. They learned it from you. When they say yes, what they mean is, I picked up a few things. I did some activity of cleaning. What do you mean by the word clean? You don't mean did they do a few cleaning activities. You mean, is your room cleaned? Did you finish the job? But they use the word in such a tricky little way so that when you go up to your room and go, their room and go, it's not clean. They can go, no, no, I I cleaned. I picked up some stuff. And then you go, what alternate universe did I enter into? You know what I asked. Oh, you asked me if I cleaned. I cleaned. You see what they do? They use language in an unclear way, knowing you mean this, knowing they mean this, but then they have plausible deniability. Is that not our age? Is that not you? Is that not you? At work, when your boss says something and you give an answer, you know he understands you to mean this when you actually mean that. We do this all of the time. We do this all of the time. Whenever there is a dissonance between what you mean and what you know your hearer understands you to mean, and you're aware of it, we're just lying. We're just lying. We're being unclear with our words, just like they are, confusing the meaning because we don't want to tell the truth because we don't have faith in God to tell the truth. 
Because we have to manipulate language to protect ourselves because God isn't sufficient. Kids, you do this all the time. It's wrong. Parents, you do this. Spouses, you do this. Workers, you do this. Church members, you do this. Elders, you do this. Did I leave anybody out? Tall people, you do this. Short people, you do this. Fat people, you do this. Thin people, you do this. Rich people, you do this. Poor people, you do this. This is America. This is how we use speech. And I could rag on politicians here and get you all to pat me on the back. That's easy. We can't do this anymore. We can't equivocate. We can't flatter. We can't leave ourselves and out with a plausible deniability. We can't twist words and speak half-truths. Lying is our national pastime. So that's, that's the gift of prophecy right there. It's fun, isn't it? And do you have the faith to admit that this is you and come before a God who will forgive you of all of your sins? There's a reason that chapter 15 follows chapter 14 and goes right to the gospel. Because they need forgiveness of their sins. Paul doesn't leave them down there in the muck. He offers them Christ that forgives all of their lies, that gives them the strength to not do it so much anymore, to stop using words like this, to speak plainly, to use fewer words so that you don't give this word salad and leave the meaning confused. That wives, you don't run your husband in circles with your words. You just say it plainly to him. Don't leave him guessing. That husbands, you don't equivocate with your words. I saw that, Jim. Don't nudge your wife. And there are some places that Christians will be particularly um, prone to lie at. The main one is male and female, what the Bible teaches on it. We'll equivocate there because our culture hates it. And of course, the related to that is homosexuality, transgender. We have to tell the truth plainly, straightforwardly, lovingly, not harshly. Another place that will do it is in our own sexual sin. Fornication, divorce and remarriage, and so on. So how do you solve this issue with lying, using words tricky? I want to talk about it in relation to love. To love others is to say things plainly in a way that they can easily understand it. It's very loving to people, not leaving them guessing or confused at your meaning. At my previous church, I had an elder who was only and ever subtle. He would never say it plainly. And after about three years of that, and I'm dense, I am dumb when it comes to that. He looked at me and said, subtlety's lost on you, isn't it? I won't tell you what went through my mind at that point. It's unloving. Just say it. Without a lot of nuance, without equivocation. And by the way, get ready. If you do that, you know what will be said of you, right? You're arrogant. Because if you just say things in few words, very straightforwardly, the next thing that you'll hear is you're a jerk, an arrogant, prideful person. 
Because we equate pride with truth-telling and humility with saying things in a way that nobody understands what you're meaning. With all sorts of, well, I think prophecy could be this, but you know, it might be that, and, and maybe for you it's this, and maybe for you it's that, leaving yourselves all kind of out when you could just say the truth. So let's love each other as Christ has loved us. Because you know what God never does to you? He never lies to you. Ever. He never says things in such a confusing manner that you don't know what he's saying. Ever. And the main thing he has said to you is, I have forgiven all of your sins because my son died on the tree. Simple, isn't it? All right. Thank you for bearing with a long sermon. I know it was difficult. Uh, let's pray and then we'll sing to close. Father, give us grace to receive your word. And, and may we count it as grace that you would love us enough as a father to bring your word like a sword, like a fire that does cut and that does burn. But God, give us faith to turn to your gospel. Give us faith to have sorrow over our sin. Give us faith to name it plainly to hate it, to no shame over it, and to turn from it. And so, God, give us grace now that we may be more helpful and loving to others by just saying things plainly. May we be preserved from fighting over things like tongues and prophecy. May we bear with each other there, love each other and our differences there, talk about them, but have faith for them here. And so, God, give us grace from our own sin and from the enemy would do like nothing better than to destroy us, to divide us. And so, God, please keep us from that. We ask for your mercy now. In Jesus' name, amen.